One of the things that Ajahn Chah sometimes said to his Western disciples was, don't use this practice of um, meditation, calming meditation in particular, just like a, just like you would use a lawyer to, to snap you out of prison. Instead, try and understand what puts you in prison in the first place. So what he was, what he was saying is that you know, sometimes we, we use meditation to, to calm down, to try and uh, you know, remove ourselves from our, 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 our complex and difficult lifestyles and we get a little bit of peace. But then we don't understand in that process, if we don't really reflect, use that peace, use that gatheredness and that samadhi to reflect, open, open to disturbance and reflect on our experience, then we're like that person using a lawyer to, to sort of spring us out of difficulty. And we don't understand what gets us into difficulty in the first place. And so then we have a retreat and we get some calm and we have peace, steadiness, and then we go back out into our everyday lives and we run into to difficulty again and then we think, oh, must go back on retreats. And so, you know, there's some 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 dissonance there. So this 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 retreat is called an integrated awakening because there's something important for us to understand about how we can actually take this practice uh, and apply it in every situation and have it available for us regardless of what is happening in in our lives and in the world around us and to help that to do that in a way that begins to dissolve this very natural sometimes subtle and not sometimes not so subtle split that begins to happen for us as meditators where we we have this sort of peaceful space and then there's the rest of it. And the peaceful space is about 1% of our life and then there's the rest of it, <laughs> which is quite sometimes turbulent and difficult and we somehow you know, um, struggle through that. So to be able to irrigate this, this uh, contemplative practice into, into all aspects of life and to use life actually to have our life as a ground of contemplation, a ground for awakening rather than something that just happens to be in the way of this meditation practice. So this, this, this establishment of, of right view, uh, which I think was, a, was one of the, the brilliant aspects of Ajahn Chah's teaching, is that it is uh, transportable. This practice is transportable in any circumstance, time and place, not just for a special time and place when we have a, a very controlled environment and um, we're able to take the opportunity, which is a very, a very... Um, wonderful opportunity, quite rare opportunity to have the support of these the kind of conditions where we don't have to make many decisions during the day, um, we don't have to engage uh, socially, we don't have to um, produce anything or respond to anything or fulfill any particular onerous duties. And we just have this support and the encouragement is just to be able to again and again and again return very, very simply to this practice of being present. And then uh, honing that quality of presence and attentiveness uh, more 
um, deeply to our actual experience. And, and although it sounds quite simple, as we've discovered, and, and listening in on um, our sharing today in our small groups, that you know, clearly it is, it is somewhat challenging, as we've discussed. That is this, this uh, coming into relationship. We talk a lot about relationships, but actually the primary relationship is coming into relationship with this body, these feelings, these sensations, these processes that we experience that we call ourself. And that actually that is very difficult <laughs> in many ways to tolerate and to be just with ourselves. It can sound you know, really wonderful and to pull the plug out and go and sit on a retreat. People will cook for me and you know it's comfortable, it's warm, it's uh, cozy. And and yet, you know, quite often one just feels like running away. So, <laughs> so what is that? You know, what is that? It's, you know, clearly it's it's not that easy. It's quite challenging. And yet this is an important practice to be able to be at peace, we come to some peace with ourselves, to understand ourselves and to develop and cultivate, have the opportunity as we've been doing to cultivate a um, abiding, an inner abiding that we can return to. So it's not necessarily something we're just going to develop overnight, it's an ongoing cultivation, but over time and space as we, we learn to return again and again uh, to to just the very simple practice of being present with as in the first foundation uh, with our breath and with our body and with sensation and learning to be present for that rather than disassociating, distracting, getting caught up that, that over time this becomes easier to return and it becomes uh, a refuge and a support and a ground for us, a, a, a point of orientation. So this, this to have the circumstance as we have in this contained and somewhat controlled environment to cultivate in this way. So we do actually have an opportunity, even in moments, to realize the potential of this, this uh, calming and gathering, this samadhi practice, learning to suffuse the body with awareness, with the breath, energy, and learning to steady, uh, steady uh, this the mental energy, which is so fickle and so, um, yeah, so so moves so fast. To learn to steady that on a slower rhythm of the body, slower rhythms of the body, this this uh, the more unify unif- unification. And beginning to to have moments of experiencing that as a, as a, a deeply embodied experience, as a slowing down and and being able to to savor this third jhana factor is about savoring. It's pity. It's p i t t i. It's learning to to not just rely on the you know having stimulated through the sensory experience which is sometimes we get very driven to have to experience more and more and more refined sensory experience or even just more something to fill 
this inner void that we can feel, but to actually learn to acquire taste almost, a learning to, to savor the simplicity or say a breath, or feeling the feet touching the ground, or just being with life as it is, you know, just the, maybe the sound of uh, the wind in the trees or seeing the snow outside or the birds crossing the sky or the, the, um, the light as the sun sets, the beautiful sun sets here, is that sort of gorgeous light, being able to savor and be filled with the moment this is part of this uh, quality of um, pity. And inwardly, more subtly, allow, uh, training attention to be with the experience, say, of the sensation of the body. And to savor even what is not comfortable for us at first, staying with, staying with, staying connected with the simplicity of being here in an embodied way in relationship to sensation and feeling here and now within the breath, then there is an accumulation of awareness, this suffusion of awareness. So the, the, this fundamental energy of the jitta or the mind begins to suffuse into the, our embodied experience and that unification, even a little taste of that is very, very pleasant. It's very fulfilling. It's very... Um, it helps to subdue this this sort of this insatiable sense of needing something that drives us ever onward and and gives rise for the conditions for fullness and contentment. So this is some of the energy of this third jhana factor of pity. It's a feeling of fullness, contentment, and when that arises organically through the, the, you know, as the path factors, the, the application of the path deepens and, and matures that arise, then we begin to, to um, be released from the drivenness and the cravings and the distractions which are connected with this agitation of the mind. So having opportunity to cultivate in this way this foundation of the path uh, the, it's, uh, not, it's not an easy easy practice to cultivate this uh, samatha calming, samadhi gathering, but over time, little by little, it is a, it is a, it will be a friend for us, an ally for us. But it's not just the end in and of itself, as we understand from the Buddha's teaching that he taught this. This calming meditation as a as a skillful abiding, a pleasing abiding here and now, and it has many fruits to it. As we as that um, becomes more mature in our practice, then there's a, a there's not only ease and well-being and facility in returning to simplicity and presence, but there's also a um, uh, a, a corresponding inner lucidity and awakening that can lead to sort of more intuitive um, perceptivity and uh, and sensitivity uh, and a heightened awareness. And uh, so there's different kinds of fruits that are very valuable, but even so, 
there can also be a subtle sort of, uh, or not so subtle, delusion within that cultivation of peace if we feel that's the only goal or object of the meditation. Because of this tendency then to have aversion or to feel resistant to that which will then disturb or or, or sort of the life itself that seems to be not so spiritual. <laughs> yeah, so it's a special compartment, my spiritual compartment, <laughs> my little spiritual box, and then you know, then the rest of it. Yeah. So this was, this is why Ajahn Chah said, you know, not only to um, use meditation like that to spring us out of difficulty, but to learn what gets us into difficulty. Is, is this the functionality of wisdom? Or he said that, you know, there's, there's two kinds of peace. There's the peace of calm, and then there's the peace that arises through wisdom and insight, the peace of knowledge that frees us from our false assumptions and purifies the heart. So, so some, to some degree, there's this cultivation of steadiness, and then we can begin to turn that uh, to contemplate the nature of our experience and particularly um, the subtle um, levels of of phenomena but also particularly that that which we find not easy to be with is a very important aspect of the Buddha's teaching. Before he came to his core teaching on the Four Noble Truths, the the primary practice of his time was this uh, cultivation of very, very refined states of consciousness, subtle, subtle planes of consciousness dwelling in the formless realms, subtle formless realms, which were connected with a certain level of denial of the body, and its needs or oppression of the bodily needs and a kind of lifting out the transcendent that was lift transcendence that was lifting out and away from the concerns of the world and the, the, the sort of law of gravity almost that pulls us into our embodiment. But what what the Buddha found you know, through this uh, cultivating those states, and he was very, very skilled at them is that he always, however subtly peaceful he became, and however much he could catapult himself beyond the concerns of the body, or however much he could crush the concerns of the body through his practices of asceticism, he would always come down. He'd always again feel limited and bound by by the realm of mortality. He didn't feel free yet. So at the at, uh, after practicing like this for six years or so, these kind of very refined states of of, of absorptions, and then said that he then tried to crush the body in all manner of ways, fasting till he got down to a grain of rice a day, and other kinds of ascetic practices that were the the fashion at the time for the yogis. These were more extreme extreme yogis, said that he even decided in the end that breathing was a problem. <laughs> it was too coarse. You know, it's like, uh, you know, just have to breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. You know, it's like a constant sort of pull. 
So he, he tried to stop breathing. And, uh, you know, by this time he was very emaciated and it was this effort to try and crush the physicality of the body. And uh, so that when he could touch his stomach, he'd feel his backbone, touch his head and the hair would fall out. So he was like on the verge of death. And not only that, he was quickening it through this practice of trying not to breathe. <laughs> And so he would do it for a while, and his body would be racked in pain. You could, you had to give give effort, full effort to to the, to to the to Siddhartha before he became the Buddha. You know, so he was pretty keen and pretty gun ho about his practice. So he was, uh, you know, at this time he was about to sort of collapse. He did collapse. There was a there was a, a, a woman that was observing all of this going on. Her name was Sujata. And uh, she, um, she, she felt for him. She was like, well, you know, he's pretty keen, but he, he doesn't look like he's going to last much longer. <laughs> so she went off and decided to do something pretty normal as to cook him some food. So she came um, to him with a, a bowl of, of milk rice, as it said in the commentaries, and and um, offered it, offered this this nourishment to the Buddha. And you know, there was a moment, maybe from the real brilliance of of just that sheer focus and clarity of that kind of a practice, that he had a moment of both. You know, there was a few things that began to sort of coalesce around that time, right at the point of his the most extreme that he'd taken the practice the most extreme. One, the one was he was beginning to think, might there be another way? <laughs> but then also he was when when Sujata approached, instead of the perhaps the the view of the time was like temptation. There's a woman with milk rice, you know, that's not so cool for sort of um, an ascetic that's renouncing the world. He just he actually just stayed there and contemplated and was open to that offering in the ways that the archetypal representation of 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 the world of form represented through a, a beautiful woman with nourishment the feminine the deep feminine so you can't do this just on the masculine warrior energy just to crush everything and break through through as an act of will, including crushing the body, that that is only an energy that takes one so far. That at a certain point there has to be the receptive, there has to be the opening to what is symbolized by the world of form, the world in a way, the journey from the warrior into the lover, that which can actually accept and embrace and not fear in uh, the embodiment of life and not fear the world of form and not fear um, to be nourished and to be loved. And so there had to be some kind of opening and receptivity in that moment of surrender. The will can only go so far. So it's a very important moment because there is a great humility at that point. And, and at that point, another sign came for him, not from the sort of a kind of a strong yang sign, but something very subtle. It was a memory um, from when he was a child. 
So it was again, it's another kind of energy from the child, the innocence of a child. It's not someone that's got it all worked out, the childlike mind. And he remembered that when he was a youngster and he sat under a tree watching the festival, he'd withdrawn from the, the village festival, there's sitting, being with his breath, that he experienced a pleasure, a simple pleasure, and he realized this pleasure was a pleasure not to be afraid of, not associated with desire and craving, but it's a pleasure that's important, that can give rise to the kind of energy and support that I need right now. And so these these very sort of innocence, openness, inquiry, curiosity of the childlike mind, the receptive, embracing, nourishing of the, the deep feminine, and you know, the the relinquishment of a pathway that, that had to had taken would take him to death. In many ways, I find this is quite a, a metaphor for our times as well, that uh, this, this sort of hyper-energized, industrial, capitalistic, um, kind of um, plundering age where we've got to the end of the planet of what we can actually extract. With If we go an inch further, then we actually beginning to sign our collective death warrant. And uh, so this, this, this kind of energy that's out of touch, that's just pushes on, pushes on, pushes on. Uh, we can't, it's like the point where the Buddha said, might there be another way? There has to be another way. We have to somehow be here in a radically different way. So it's a very important point to get to evolutionarily. And in many ways, the Buddha demonstrated this might there be another way, and demonstrated another way, so you could say the Buddha is someone of the future. He's demonstrating what is a possibility, what we have yet to grow into. So at that point, uh, he had to relinquish, he relinquished the way that he was going. He didn't perhaps know like we don't know totally what the the new way for us to live as as seven going on nine billion people on a planet we we would need six to seven planets to resources at the level we're needing now we don't have that <laughs> there might be there be another way we don't know exactly some of the elements of that are emerging but it's a moment of 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 um of pausing, of opening, of humility, of surrendering. And it was with that kind of mind that the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree that night of his awakening and was, uh, first of all, assailed, as mentioned this morning, by all the forces that would rise up and say, you know, you're an idiot. If you do this, you know, you, you, you're going you're gonna to not make it somehow or another. And he just stayed or tolerated all those sabotaging voices, all those undermining forces, all those tempting energies. And he sat there and sat there and stayed very simply with the breath, with the breath. And it's said through that night, as he's, um, he had a great facility for these deep absorb- absorptions, but he was able to use them. He just didn't stay there. He was able to turn that very honed, 
clarity and insight and and um, focus and uh, purified consciousness to turn that to investigate the nature of reality the nature of what is actually really primary quest what is actually that you know what transcends this this mortal realm is there anything that doesn't die or are we always just subject to death so in that mind he contemplated and it said through the night there were there were um he had the three knowledges arise in his awakening the first knowledge as it said classically in the sutta was the the memory of all of his previous lives uh, so <clears throat> He, he 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 recognized all the different forms and shapes he had appeared in the foods he ate the clothes he wore the, the 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 kind of person he was and you could for some people that's a metaphor that works and other people you could say all the different stories of even this life we all have already many different stories in the second great knowledge of the the, the night of his awakening he saw all you know the the lives of many many beings he realized not just him appearing again and again in different shapes and forms but many many beings and he could understand begin to understand the causal effects that brought about this result this place of being this way of being that shape that form that person in that situation that story and how that works out so one can one can understand that on different levels, literally, metaphorically, so on. And the third knowledge, so in a way it was like just seeing all of the shapes of the self, all the configurations, and then what actually that's all subject, all subject to this this arising and passing, this realm of mortality, birth and death. And so then the third knowledge of the night of awakening was uh, the knowledge that was able to free him from being bound forever to be bound in the ongoing shaping of being um, identified within the self-structures. He broke through, so he broke through uh, and began to to release this fundamental jitta or heart or mind with the identification with uh, the structures of the self. And so it's said that the, the, this this mind or heart not understanding its primordial nature as awareness, as timeless, formless, shapeless awareness, not really recognizing and realizing that there's this tendency to move into identification, the self finding a home somewhere, this feeling of finding a home in some shape or feeling or story or memory or identity or role. And and in the moment he, he saw that there was a, a breaking from that, there was a release from that, that was at, utterly irreversible. And he said at that moment, um, through many a birth, the realms of existence I have wandered, seeking but not finding the builder of this house. Sorrowful is p- repeated birth. O house builder, 
Thou art seen, thou shalt build no house again. All thy rafters are broken, thy ridge pole is shattered. My mind has attained the deathless and achieved the end of all craving. This, this, this he, he talked about the realization of there is that which is unborn, uncreated, unformed, unoriginated. And it's because of this that there is the escape and the freedom from the created and the formed. And so this uh, he called Nibbana, or, or peace, the realization of peace, the knowledge of peace, there was peace. Called this nibbana, the cessation of lust and hate, the unformed, the taintless, the truth, the other shore, the hard to see, the everlasting, the invisible, the undiversified, peace, the deathless the superior goal, the blessed, safety, exhaustion of craving, the wonderful, the marvelous, the non-distressed, non-affliction, the fading of lust, freedom, independence, the island, the shelter, the harbor, the refuge, the beyond, nibbana. So, it was very blissful, <laughs> very blissful. And you know, for a while, six weeks or so, as the story says, he was um, absolutely um, delighting and nourishing and enjoying the nectar of the bliss, of liberation, of freedom. And it spent even a whole week just in great devotion and gratitude, staring at the Bodhi tree that had sheltered him. So you see through the Buddha's life is this wonderful relationship that he has around uh, nature and trees. They've been very important. But there was also this feeling of this is so subtle that I I don't... uh, uh, I can't, no one will understand this. This world full of, it's full of ignorance, full of craving, full of delusion. There's, there's no one that's going to really get what I've seen. It's too hard uh, to communicate this. And it's said that there was a, you know, there was a great reluctance and, and he was deciding, on the verge of deciding, just to sort of, you know, say, well, that's nice, goodbye, sweet world. And to retire, maybe, as was the way for many yogis, into maybe the Himalayas and live out the rest of his life. And at that point, the devas up in the heavenly realms were freaking out. It's like, God, you know, this guy's gotten this far and he's kind of, he's the one, he's going to do this big thing and he's about to sort of bail. So they sent down this great deva, this great radiant being from the Brahma heavens called Sahampati. And uh, this uh, Sahampati, the Brahma realm, is is an interesting metaphor for that taking the formless into form. You know, so, so there is a journey still to be completed. It doesn't finish with awakenings. There has to still be the embodiment of that, the lived, the integration of that, the living of that. 
And it, he was right to be reluctant because it's actually very hard <laughs> for 41 years. As he tried to express the inexpressible, it wasn't easy. You know, so, so it's a natural sense of reluctance. You know, how do you put into words what is actually beyond form? As all these words are just, you know, really pointers you can't capture. As it says in the this the, the Lotus Sutra, this Dharma cannot be described. Words fall silent before it. It's uh, indescribable, and yet, or you know, he spent forty-one years trying to describe and explain and point and. So they say in Zen, the Buddha taught for 41 years, but not a word was spoken. It's just the the paradox. But anyway, so so Humpati came down from the Brahma realms, knelt before the Buddha and said, please, there are those with a little dust in their eye, and for the want of you not teaching the Dharma, they will not experience the freedom from suffering. Please go forth and teach for the welfare of the many folk. And he said, okay. So the, the Buddha then, with his divine eyes, well, who will understand this? And the first person, that one of the first people that saw him was really mesmerized by his radiancy and said, wow, you're so beautiful, you're so peaceful, you're so radiant. Who, who are you? Who is your teachers? What have you learned from? Who have you learned from? And he said, no, I am the Tathagata. I have no teacher. I am the fully awakened one. I'm all awakened on my own efforts. There is no one that has taught me. I am the, I am the, I am the, the Buddha. And the guy kind of said, well, that's nice for you. And said he shook his head and walked away. I know. So he couldn't, he, he wasn't able to, um, he was able to maybe honor the Buddha, but he wasn't able to translate that insight or that kind of a transmission, which was a pure transmission of, I am the Tathagata, that's a pure statement of all of our nature. That's the, the, actually the truest thing we can say about ourselves. <laughs> you know, the one dwelling in suchness. You know, in the midst of, there is suchness in the midst of movement. I am the Tathagata. But it wasn't a message that actually stuck. There was no path, no way. And so by the time he came to teach his first teaching, he had formulated, as it said, a way of teaching that people could actually relate to. He gave the first teaching, as we know at Varanasi, to the first of five ascetics that he'd practiced with before and who had abandoned him because he'd accepted the milk rice. And they said, no, he's gone weak, he's gone soft. So when he approached them, Varanasi, and they saw him coming, he said, here comes that slacker, Gautama. Don't stand up for him, don't respect him. He accepted milk rice from a woman. He, he you know, lost the true, pure way. But as he approached, he was so peaceful and so radiant and so empowered, they couldn't but help themselves, lay out a seat and invite him to sit down. And so then, you know, he said, have you ever heard me speak like this? And this is when he laid out his peerless teachings, called the teaching peculiar to the Buddhas, unique teaching at that time. It's called the Dhammachaka Sutta, the, the turning of the first turning of the Dharma will, the first turning of the Dharma will, which is still turning through time and space here into this 
this time now. He laid out his his uh, teaching on there is the experience of dukkha. There is the that which gives rise to dukkha. There is the overcoming of dukkha, and there is a path to the ending of dukkha. It's the four great noble truths. So the the this begins if you um, you know as a, it, it, for all of us it begins in a way that we can relate to there is the experience of dukkha that which was unsatisfactory that which is suffering that which is difficult to bear as it's sometimes translated we meet that which is difficult to bear every day you say there is you you know you are the tatagata or there is the tatag you say well that might be so, but I can't relate. But if you say there's, you know, do you suffer today? <laughs> do you struggle? Do you feel unsatisfactoriness? Do you feel some sense of dis-ease? So yeah, we can all relate to that. And so, oh good, well that's the beginning of the path. It is the acknowledgement of, of our unsatisfactoriness, um, our feeling, this feeling of agitation, this feeling of dis-ease lack of ease, or sometimes translated as that which is apart from, the, the do is to be apart from the akash, the, the spacious or the perfect or the whole, this fundamental state as incarnating, being incarnated as in, in a seemingly separate form, we're apart from the sense of being interwoven in a seamless universe. And that separative consciousness is fundamentally connected with the feeling of, of dukkha, uh, vulnerability or fear or anxiety or desire, longing, grasping, those kinds of energies that get stimulated from our fundamental separate, separative experience. But also so the birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, being with what is unloved is dukkha, being parted from the loved is dukkha, getting what you don't want is dukkha, not getting what you want is dukkha. In brief, the five focuses of the grasping mind are dukkha. It's the different um, territories of of, uh, spheres of what is not easy to be with. And so in the, in the most subtle way, this, this um, dukkha can be very subtle. Just that feeling of dis-ease that operates it's almost continually at some level or other, unless there's a real steady inquiry, or maybe we're distracted and absorbed in a, some sort of sensory experience or pleasure, or can be happiness, can, can, be, can you know, drop away but it's often there at a subtle level maybe, and it can really flare up and be very extreme, intolerable and, and difficult. And so in this, this um, training of dukkha, each of these four truths has an encouragement of relationship, a training. This dukkha the Buddha encouraged us needs to be met, not to be avoided, not to be repressed, projected outwardly, to blame the world, projected inwardly, something wrong with you, it's nothing wrong with you. It's actually 
a common experience that we can reflect on, but reflect on from the steadiness of of the of mindfulness and and awareness and this gatheredness that we're developing. I can begin to reflect on the experience of dukkha. And he said there's a certain kind of dukkha. We're not going to get maybe rid of the pain, natural pains of aging in the body or the body getting sick, but there's a dukkha that gen- is generated from the avijara, the not seeing clearly the nature of reality, the assumptions we make because we assume something that isn't the case, it's not actually reality, and therefore we set ourselves up constantly for this experience. He said this kind of dukkha that originates from the fundamental ignorance of the mind mind not knowing its true nature, its primordial awareness, mistaking its identity with the, within the changing play of phenomena, trying to find a home there as the Buddha did, uh, you know, and, and dissolve that tendency. He called it the breaking down of the house, of the self. That, that ignorance constantly agitates and brings this dukkha. As we turn to that experience and contemplate it, as Jen Chao would say, we can begin to see what originates in the moment, what is giving cause and rise to that experience of, of dukkha. And this, in the second noble truth, is the experience of, as Jen Chao put it very simply, the, the wanting and the not wanting of the mind. You know, we, we're, we're constantly, we can contemplate this in the retreat, we really can have moments of seeing that we're, we're wanting it not to be this way, we want it another way. We want our meditation not to be this way, we want it another way. We want our body not to be this way, we want it another way. We want the sounds to be different, we want the people to be different, we want our relatives to be different, we want... You know, said last night, we know what it should be. I can tell you how the world should be. And, you know, because of... And it's not to say that we shouldn't work to make things as best as we can, but when we come from this fundamental ignorance, there's no end, because it's never quite has how we think it should be, or we are not. So this second, uh, you know, this, this being driven by this wanting and not wanting... You know, the, the, the practice around that is to release from that, to let it go, to see it and, and moments of just tolerating being here. As we release and let go, so let go, not grasping moving into that, that fundamental avicca, pachya, sankara, the ignorant, the not knowing, the awareness, not enough just to be here, is it? Something more has to happen. So we have a, a sort of multi-billion dollar industry of something more to keep us ever filling that void. Someone was mentioning in one of the groups today, what do you do about that in a void? that we fear so much to meet. You know, you just consume the planet <laughs> to fill it. You know, how much do we consume to fill it? 
So what else? What else? So we turn to, we learn, we gather some strength, some samadhi to begin to turn. And then beneath what appears, first of all, is nothing much, nothing much, it's empty or it's difficult or it's lonely or it's it's bland or it's bleak. You know, we begin to actually start to negotiate and work into the territory of the third noble truth, which is the territory of Nibbana, Nirvana, Niroda, Nibida, which is about dispassion, peace, relinquishment, recognition, recognition that all along, here and now, is that which is just present, the simple nature of awareness, of being, the ground of being. It's a returning home, a tasting of peace. The surrendering of the endless complexities of the seeking mind. And this, in the third truth, the Buddha encouraged us to taste, to know. Or sometimes it's uh, called in uh, Shurangama Sutra in the Mahayana school is called the the patience, being patient with the non-production of dharmas. Not always having to produce things to fill the void. So this practice in many ways is, is a patient practice. The realization, the tasting of peace is accessible for us. This isn't, we don't have to be a super meditator. We don't have to have, you know, ultras, refined states of consciousness. Ajahn Chah said, if you've got enough concentration to read a book, then you can do this. <laughs> That's quite hopeful. <laughs> you know, it's all within our sphere of our ability to, to work these truths, to work them. They're practical. They are teaching for human beings, they're teaching for us in this time, in this space, in this place. The doorway into peace is through the recognition of what isn't peaceful. So every time we feel the dukkha, we begin to gain a little more strength to tolerate, to, to rest there, to steady there, and to investigate. It might not be sort of the unshakable, irreversible uh, awakening of a Buddha, but the territories, we can begin to move into the territories and get some familiarity. The dimension beyond the, uh, the endless agitations of the mind. So when the, the, the restlessness appear, or even in a moment, I, w- I would like it to be a bit different than it is now. It will be soon, <laughs> you know. Just to relinquish that and, and relax, accept, open. What what do we not? What are we excluding from our field of awareness now that shouldn't be here? Just to relax, accept, open. Until it's going to to allow ourselves to to rife. and allow allow that uh, peace to rise up in our arriving, to 
to meet us. You can taste it. This, the uh, great Thai meditation master, Jamahabui, said, when the mind gains change of lineage knowledge, passing from the mundane to the transcendent, it will see what dies and what doesn't. It will blossom as buddho, the awareness that knows no cessation, no death. So the... Recognition through change, seeing seeing the sounds arising, dissolving back to presence, feelings and thoughts arising. There's a rising and dissolving, rising and dissolving, rising and dissolving, and there's that which is just here. You get a, a feeling for that when we can also then contemplate what is the dukkha that we create. There's no one doing it to us, but the mind is creating it. And this is the dukkha we can resolve. Yes, there'll still be pains to deal with. Yes, there'll still be a crazy world to respond to. Yes, there'll still be activity to heal and... and um, do creatively whatever we can to respond within that world for the welfare of ourselves, our communities, and so on. But more deeply, more deeply, can we know, can we realize within our capacity the place of putting down, the place of release, the place of peace? This is the invitation that the Buddha opened us to up to us all, whatever, we've, wherever we've come from, whatever situation, whatever religious affiliation, it doesn't matter. This is an invitation back into our own deepest knowing, our own deepest presence. And without this, as the Buddha said, you as I, through not understanding these four truths, have wandered through countless realms of samsara, countless rebirths, countless realms of suffering, unnecessarily so, but through hearing this teaching, this is not him saying, it's me adding now on to that, through, <laughs> sounded a bit like him, through hearing this teaching, <laughs> through hearing this teaching, we have a map, in the fourth truth, uh, uh, the path of cultivation, a way of cultivation, cultivation that takes us ever more here, ever more now. This path, as the Buddha said, just as one. This is what he. This is what he he said about this path that he laid out through this turning of the first wheel of the Dharma and his teaching of the four noble truths. Just as one faring through a forest should see an ancient road travel by people of former times with beautiful pools, groves and gardens. So I have seen an ancient path traversed by enlightened ones of old. It's not just this Buddha. 
many other Buddhas from different eons. This ancient, ancient, ancient way of return. I have seen an ancient path traversed by enlightened ones of old. Having fully come to know this path, this way of awakening, I have established this way for the welfare of all. May we use our time well on this retreat. It's a great um, opportunity in this wonderful Sangha here together. May we use our time well to cultivate this ancient way of old that is ever pertinent, ever fresh, ever new to each of us here and now as we still hear the um, right, right back from that time in Varanasi when the Sahampati from the angelic kingdom came as an act of compassion, act of grace, came to invoke this teaching. Still that wheel is turning. As we receive that invitation and hear that invitation and connect to that teaching, may we use our time well, each of us supporting each other, so that we too can cultivate this ancient way of awakening for the welfare not only of ourselves but also of our families and communities and at this time this um, world in crisis may there be many blessings for each of us and from each of us as we cultivate this path I'm sure there will be Finishing the day, may we dedicate, or finishing this uh, session, practice session, may we dedicate our practice to the welfare of our parents, whether with us or passed over, our families and communities, grandparents and ancestors, children and those to come. May we dedicate the blessings for the welfare of this country, may be guided in a good way and all countries, all beings. May this great earth be healed. May all beings be well. May they succeed in their paths of awakening.
พา